0: I want to begin this morning by taking you all the way back to Acts chapter 1. And for a measure of context, several world-changing events have occurred. Mainly three days after being publicly crucified, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And not only did he rise from the dead, but he then appeared over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. As kind of an aside, the number of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus is really astounding. In fact, an early Christian profession, maybe one of the, the earliest, written down in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3-8 through 8, by the Apostle Paul, stated, stated the following, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Continuing, Jesus, the resurrected Lord, was seen by Cephas, this being Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain or are alive to the moment. Some, though, have fallen asleep or have passed. After that, Jesus was seen by James. This was his half-brother. Same mom, different dads. Then by all the apostles. Then last of all, Jesus was seen by me also, Paul says, one born out of due time. Now the scene that we have recorded in Acts 1 has Jesus with a group of his disciples atop the Mount of Olives. This is after the crucifixion. This is after the resurrection. This is 40 days later. Jesus sitting with them on top of the Mount of Olives just to the east of the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus knows that his time on earth has come to an end, which is why he's brought them to the Mount of Olives. Jesus intends to ascend back home to heaven, His work being completed. With that in mind, let's dive right into the narrative. Again, Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. Therefore, Luke, the author of Acts, writing, When they had come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you should note that that was a very good question. It was a theologically sound, it was a relevant question. But Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for the question, but instead just says, guys, that's really not for you to know at this moment. Continuing, Jesus then says, but you shall receive. So don't worry about the kingdom, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding region, and to the end of the earth. So what Jesus is saying is He's saying instead of worrying about this future kingdom, restoring the kingdom of Israel, I'm commissioning you as My disciples to be witnesses of Me, of the resurrection, of the things that you've seen. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And not only is that your great commission, but I am going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to indwell you with the Spirit of God to provide you power to accomplish this important task. Now, when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, Luke says that Jesus was taken up. So he ascends. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as Jesus went up, and I mean again, that would have been a sight, behold, Two men stood by them. So they're all looking up, oblivious to the fact that you have these two men standing by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? My answer would have been, Well, did you just see what happened, right? Jesus just ascended. This is crazy. But then they said, This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. Amazing. Now the reason that this prophetic text, this prophetic utterance by these two angels is important, it's really threefold. One, what they say, the scene, it it defines our purpose on the earth. Like we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to testify. Secondly, in this exchange, we we come to see uh, why believers have looked for and anticipated the second coming of Jesus. I mean, as Jesus is going up into heaven, you have the angels saying, he's going to come back. That that has been the explanation, the reason, the logic, why we've looked for Jesus' coming. We were told to. Thirdly, it establishes the idea, that the purpose then for this future advent, Jesus' return, will be to finally establish... The, the source of their original question, the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus will come back. Why? Well, there will be a second phase to what he's wanting to accomplish on this earth. Unfinished business, you might say. I understand the resurrection is of such importance. Because the resurrection makes it clear that Jesus is alive. I mean, without the resurrection, we would have no knowledge that Jesus is alive. His ascension then is important because it implies a future physical return of the very living Jesus. Now as we approach the second half of Revelation 19, you need to know that the bodily and public second coming of the resurrected Jesus to this planet in order to establish a literal kingdom in which Jesus will reign the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years, is not some fringe theological notion held held and believed by a few of the more insane elements within Christianity, the fundamentalists or the cults. No, 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 my friend. The second coming of Jesus Christ is an absolutely central tenet of the Christian faith. To this point, John Piper has written, The center of Christianity is the coming of the Son of God into the world as a real man to destroy the works of the devil and create a new people for his own glory. The very heart of our faith is that he did this by obeying the law of God, dying for the sins of the people, rising victorious over death, ascending to the right hand of God with all his enemies under his feet, The second coming of Christ is the completion of His saving work. If you take it away, the whole fabric of His saving work unravels. The second coming, it's central. Let me give you some examples of how central it is. You know, the second coming of Jesus is referenced 1,845 times in 17 books within the Old Testament. Additionally, the subject is broached in 23 of the 27 books contained in the New Testament. Meaning that the idea, it's roughly mentioned in the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus, in one out of every 30 verses. Amazingly, prophetic references to the second coming of Jesus outnumber his first coming by a factor of 8 to 1. Like The promise of his return was of such significance and importance that Jesus referenced it 21 times in the Gospels. Southern Baptist minister Adrian Rogers made this interesting observation. He said, you find in the Bible, for example, the new birth, as important as that is, mentioned nine times. Baptism, as important as that is, mentioned 20 times. Repentance, as important as that is, mentioned 70 times. But I want to say the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned specifically in the Bible at least 380 times. The Bible keeps telling us over and over again. Let me share with you one of what could be many famous passages regarding the second coming. And I want to do this to just kind of whet your appetite or set the stage for today's sermon. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, often known mainly for its 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 relevance to the Christmas story, but, but listen to its, it, the text in its entirety. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now that's the part that's pretty known. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Now, before we get to our text this morning, I, I do want to reiterate, and in many ways, contrast my position concerning the second coming of Jesus with that of others. Most notably, while I believe that this event is of incredible significance to the overarching plans of God for humanity, I do not believe the second coming should be the anticipation of the church or our present expectation. Because I hold to a literal seven-year period of a future tribulation, whereby God judges the earth and finishes His prophetic dealings with the nation of Israel. The timeline and goal of which is established in Daniel 9, and then practically recorded for us in the book we've been studying for a few months. As the bride of Jesus Christ, I believe the church should not be looking for the second coming of Jesus, but should be looking for the rapture, this future moment, when the groom comes to retrieve his bride, when he removes her from this earth before initiating this tribulational period, these seven years that culminate or end with his second coming. Amazingly, as we're going to see this morning, while the world will look up and see the physical return of Jesus Christ, some in great terror, Others, with a measure of of immediate relief and astonishment, you and I, the church of Jesus, the wife of Christ, the queen coming with the king of kings, will end up having a much different vantage point. So without further hesitation, let's dive right into this incredible passage. Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11, John writing, says, Now I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. John begins here by noting how he saw heaven opened. Now there is a a bit of a suddenness to the transition that that occurs between verse 10 and verse 11. We, We go from the, the beginnings of this celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, with the bride and the groom, the husband and the wife, exiting the Yeshu, this, this private area of intimacy and seclusion, where they spend time with one another, exiting. We go from the marriage supper being initiated to, boom, heaven opening. There's a suddenness to it. You know, not only does John, his description, present Jesus' return happening in the same manner as his original departure, John here he's describing heaven opening you can imagine like he's describing this this portal opening it's not as though Jesus is coming from outer space it's there's this portal uh, opening up in the hidden veil that conceals the dimensions of heaven from this earth it's this amazing scene that John is is witnessing and you know it's interesting the very first thing that then catches his attention. He sees heaven open, and what does he see? Behold, a white horse. Behold, consider, think about it. It's the first thing that catches his his attention. And you can imagine, logically, that a white stallion coming from heaven with the ability to fly and move between dimensions would be something indeed to behold. Behold. Such a thing, you can imagine, would catch your attention. It's probably the last thing you would be expecting to come through an open portal between dimensions. Beyond that, horses were used in battle. And traditionally, a white horse, a white stallion would be reserved for a king. With that in mind, it it doesn't take long for John to quickly move from the horse to the rider. He writes, And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In his earlier letter written to the church of the Laodiceans, a letter recorded for us in Revelation 3, beginning with verse 14, Jesus actually introduces himself to this church as being the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Not only does this reference of John here in chapter 19 confirm the identity of the writer as that as being Jesus. But it again affirms something important about Jesus: that he is both trustworthy, faithful, and that he's completely dependable. True. I hope you know that Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus says what he'll do, and he does what he says. Jesus promised his disciples that he would return. And now what is he doing? He's returning. John continues of Jesus, he says, In righteousness he judges and makes war. Now please note, this is an important sentence because it really defines the purpose in Jesus' coming. You know, in his first advent, Jesus came to wage war on sin on behalf of man. In his second advent, Jesus will come instead to wage war on sinful men. In one, Jesus is the Savior. In the other, he's the executioner. John says, in righteousness, Jesus will judge sin and wage war on sinners. In his return, Jesus here, he's not passive. He's not conciliatory. Jesus is a man bringing a reckoning. Now, before your idea or your sensibility sours on such an idea, like never forget that in the face of injustice, you can't remain a pacifist and still claim the moral high ground. Like it would be unjust to just sit back and allow a blatant wrongdoing to continue in front of you, unabated. That's not right. Yeah, at some point, justice demands an active intervention. You see, God allowed the rebellion of man. The rebellion of man in the face of His continual grace and perpetual goodness. God allowed things to go on as long as he possibly could. But by this point, by this moment in human history, the time for repentance has finally expired. The hourglass has run out. John continues with a description of the writer, a description that further confirms the identity of him to be Jesus. Verse 12, his eyes, John says, were like a flame of fire. Now, we noted in the original description of the glorified Jesus back in, in Revelation 1, verse 14, the, the same description that his eyes were like a flame of fire, that what, what John is describing for us is that within Jesus, his countenance, his eyes, there, there was this, this glowing passion. There's this burning intensity. He continues, he says, and on his head were many crowns. In the Greek language, there are two different words used for crowns. There, there's, one that, that, there's one word usage that describes a crown of achievement. If you're looking for an illustration in, in the Olympic Games, if you won an event, you were given a crown, a wreath. It signified that you would, you would accomplish something noteworthy, worth respect, point of honor. But that's not the word we have here for crown. Instead, this was the crown of royalty. It was not given because of, of, of deservedness, that you had you accomplished something to deserve it. It was a crown given by inherent worthiness. Jesus has a crown of royalty. And, and it's not just one, but it's many, which is a very odd picture. But what John is trying to describe for us is he's, is he's suggesting, using this plurality of language, that he has just yes, this crown of royalty. But that he has an unlimited sovereignty. John says that he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now while John makes no mention as to where exactly this name had been written, the location of the name, I find it to be really interesting that there are some things about Jesus that will still remain a mystery and eternity. He has a name written that no one knew, but only himself. Continuing, John says that he was clothed, this rider, with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Now, in the original, the word robe, it's not a robe in the, in the sense that we think of a robe. In fact, it's really just a nondescript term that means his garments, his clothes. Like, the point that John is making here is he's conveying the idea that Jesus' attire, or what he's wearing, had been dipped in blood. And frankly, there are several ways that you can read this description. Like, it could be that all John is saying is that Jesus' digs, his clothes, his kicks, had been dyed a bloodish red color. And that's one way of reading it. The other way may be that his clothes were red, because they had been splattered by blood. They had been made red by blood. Now, you can read this however you'd like, but there is another description of Jesus' second coming that might give us a bit of insight. We find it in Isaiah 63. The prophet asks this question. He says, Who is this who comes from Eden, with dyed garments of Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, Traveling in the greatness of his strength? Well, the answer I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. No doubt, Jesus. Isaiah then inquires, Why then is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? And Jesus provides the reason his garments are red. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. Or more accurately translated, splattered upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes. So, seems to be that the reason his robe is dipped in blood is from the slaughter. I love the way that John ends verse 13. He writes, his name is called the Word of God. You know, in the opening of John's gospel, the apostle wrote, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Again, creating uh, uh, connecting the, the masculine pronoun he, him, to Word. And without him, the Word, nothing was made. And then a few verses later, John adds, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No doubt John is is describing Jesus using His name as the Word of God, connecting us back to the beginning of His Gospel. You know, in, in a very practical sense, human language, and therefore our words, create the most basic way that we communicate And reveal ourselves one to another. In fact, the more time we spend conversing, the more time we spend sitting down and verbally sharing our thoughts with one another, the more that we get to know each other. And when verbal words are not not available, written words do just fine. In fact, you can make the argument that it's written words that provide the most clarity. uh, as little room for misinterpretation or tone. A letter, the articulation of a thought, an idea, the sentiment, the person. And referring to Jesus with the name, the Word of God, John is doing something interesting because he's saying that in the person of Jesus, as, as being revealed using the most basic, primal method of human communication, words, His words. We have the ultimate revelation of the person of God, his heart, his person, his thoughts to mankind. You see, from the opening of Genesis to the final chapters of the book of Revelation, God is revealing himself to you, to mankind. And how is he doing it? He's doing it with the way we communicate to one another, through words, through the written word. You see, it is the written Word that reveals to us the living Word, Jesus. This is why in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we're told that the Word of God is living and powerful. How can the Word of God be living and powerful? Well, it's revealing a person. Therefore, the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It can pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Again, the Word of God being able to discern the thoughts of the reader. How is it alive? It's because it's revealing a person who is alive. This also explains why in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, the Apostle says the Word of God lives and abides forever. When John, referring to Jesus, the rider of this white horse, saying that his name is the Word of God, it's as though he's telling us, John, the author here, that the one in whom the Word has always been designed to reveal, has now arrived to planet Earth. I should add that this is why we utilize the majority of our time together on Sunday mornings to work our way through God's Word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Well, undoubtedly there is an important place the experience of worship, the activity, and there is an importance to partaking of the elements, representing His body and blood. And while it's entirely necessary, important to come and gather, to spend time with one another in Christ-centered fellowship, koinonia community, it is, my friend, only the Word of God. It is not worship, it is not community, it's not even communion. It is God's Word that has the intrinsic fundamental power to call people who are dead to life. It is the same Word that spoke forth and says Lazarus, come forth. God's Word has the power to cause people who are dead to be resurrected to life and then it has the power to take that life and transform it through this natural process more into the image and likeness of Jesus. It's only God's Word that does that miracle. You see, we at Calvary 3.16 spend time with Jesus by spending time in His Word. And I will add that if you want to get to know Jesus, get to know His Word. Zach, I feel like I'm so distant with the Lord. Okay, well, Jesus would never leave you. So if there is a distance, it's because you've left him. So let's start with that premise. Jesus is never running from you. We run from him. So if you feel distant from Jesus, the distance isn't created by him. That's your fault. How so? Well, when was the last time you were in his word? He said, I want to talk to you and get to know you and spend time with you and fellowship with you. I want you to know my heart, so my thoughts. Here's my word. This is how you get to know me. This is how I reveal myself. So if you feel distant, when was the last time you were in his word? Well, you know, it's been a little while. Okay, well, there's the distance. <laughs> Comically, back in the day, we were running a discipleship group with a bunch of, of teenage guys. We called it man group. And over and over and over again, you would get the same refrain, you know, about their spiritual walk. And I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with that. And it's like, well, when was the last time you were studying God's word? But I don't know. And so we just kind of ended up coining the phrase, shut up and read your Bible. Like, like the solution to what's going on in your life right now isn't psychoanalysis or spiritual banter. It's, bro, shut up, stop making excuses, and just read your Bible. Like, every day, read your Bible. And it's amazing that when you do that, you feel connected to Jesus. Why? Because His name is the Word of God. Now, what's fascinating about this scene is that Jesus, on this white stallion, comes through this portal from heaven to earth, but he's not alone. Look at verse 14. And the armies in heaven, this is what John says, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now in the Greek, this phrase, the armies in heaven, it's, it's enthralling. Like from the open portal allowing heaven to invade earth, John sees following Jesus, also riding on white horses. What can only be described as just a great army, rank upon rank upon rank, coming through this portal, clothed in brilliant white garments. Note, no reference of them being armed with anything. Interesting for an army but their attire, righteousness. Now, in order to explain who's included in this army, we need to turn to several other passages in Scripture for clarity. I'm going to read you a few. In Jude chapter 1, we read that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all, who are ungodly among them, of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, the Lord comes with who? With ten thousands of His saints. And writing to the Colossians, Paul is clear of the church. Colossians 3, verse 4, that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12-13, through Paul writes, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. You see, the evidence is overwhelming that the church, we, along with the Old Testament saints and the tribulational believers who have been martyred for their faith during these seven years, with very possibly the angelic host, make up this occupying army, the armies of heaven, that come with Jesus to rule. Again, our vantage point, it's not from earth looking into this portal, it's from the other side of the portal looking through, seeing Jesus coming to the earth. I can't wait for my eyes to see such a sight. Now, back in the heavenly scene recorded for us in Revelation 5, verses 8 and 10, if you need any more evidence, following the rapture, John writes that when Jesus had taken the scroll, they, the saints, sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign not in heaven, But on the earth, verse 15 of chapter 19, now, out of his mouth, so this is the mouth of Jesus, goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, out of his mouth, this is the image, out of his mouth coming this sharp sword used to strike the nations. It's really kind of just this dramatic imagery, isn't it? You know, back in Revelation 1, verse 16, and and then repeated again in Revelation 2, verse 12, John has described Jesus as being the one who has this sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. Now, the choice of this Greek word here in chapter 19, sharp sword, in reference to the two-edged sword, it's identical. It's the identical phrase. Sharp two-edged sword and sharp sword, same words. Which tells us that what John is seeing here, it's not a dagger, but it's this massive two-sided blade that's worn over the right shoulder. It's a sword used a six-foot-long sword, used only in a battle context, to, to inflict maximum damage. What's interesting is obviously John is not saying that there was a, a, a literal physical sword coming out of his mouth. No, 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 no. He's employing figurative language to let us know of Jesus' weaponry. His weaponry. You see, the same powerful word That spoke everything into existence in the beginning. In the beginning God said, let there be light. And there was light. God created all things out of nothing through the power of his word. God said it and it happened. That same word used in the beginning is now being used by Jesus to put an end to man's rebellion. Jesus speaks the word. And it's all over. Let me give you one illustration as to just kind of the practical power of Jesus' words. In John 18, we're given this really interesting story. Let me read it for you. We're told that Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came, and again, they come to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and the other 11 disciples are praying. It's the middle of the night. They came there, we're told, with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, therefore, knowing that all things would come upon him, he goes forward. So there's this mob of people coming with Judas to arrest Jesus. Jesus comes to meet them. He doesn't run, and he says, "Who are you seeking?" So they answered, and again, it must have been dark. They said, "Jesus of Nazareth." And so Jesus said to them, "I am." And and then in the translation, it says, "I am He." It's in italicized. It's not there. Jesus just says, I am. Again, employing the name of God, the sacred name of God. Moses in Exodus 3, being commissioned and sent to Egypt. Well, whom do I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. I am. So when they say, who are you seeking? Jesus says, who are you seeking? They're like, "We're, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. And then notice, we're told in Judas... Who betrayed him also stood with them. And the moment Jesus said, I am. Everyone there drew back, boom, and fell to the ground. (laughs) Two words. Knocked flat a detachment of troops. Power in God's word. God's word can call forth something that doesn't exist into existence. Sometimes that's what we come to scriptures needing, isn't it? We open God's word, asking God's word to penetrate our heart and create something in us that doesn't exist. I need fill in the blank. It's not there. Lord, I need you to put it in me. And God's word does that. It speaks into existence that which doesn't, and he can do that in you. Amazing. Amazing. John says that when this battle is over, Jesus will rule them, speaking of the nations, with a rod of iron. In Psalms chapter 2, verse 9, which is a messianic psalm, we read predicted of Jesus concerning the nations that he would break them with a rod of iron. We have this reference again. We're also told that he would dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. John here, he's describing a scene where Jesus, yes, he comes to the earth, yes, he destroys his enemies. But then he takes complete control of this world. Back in Revelation 1, verse 1, John gives us, he establishes for his book an underlying thesis statement. He declares what is about to be written to be the, quote, revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. You see this great unveiling of the person of Jesus. It's what the entire book has been building towards this moment, this unveiling, this presentation. You see, while Jesus originally left this earth in victory, He came first as a suffering servant. Jesus came to save us from sin as a sacrificial Lamb of God. He entered Jerusalem riding on a lowly donkey. He bore a crown of thorns as He carried His own cross to death. No one took Jesus' life from Him. Instead, He willingly laid down His life because of love. And yet, Jesus will return to this earth, but it will look much different. Yes, He comes again in victory, but this time it is as a triumphal king. He's no longer riding on a donkey, but He's mounted upon a white stallion. He's not coming to save sinners. He's coming to wage war on them. He comes to judge this world in justice as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's no longer donning a crown of thorns, but a crown of gold. And it's His Word that has forever brought life that is now bringing death. In the second coming, Jesus is no longer presented as being meek and mild, but He is fierce and determined. And in case anyone... He was confused at all to his identity. John describes this name, a name, written on his robe that has with it this wicked corresponding tattoo inked on his thigh that reads, King of Kings, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. My friend, this is what should be considered his triumphal entry. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now, this angel's not standing in the actual sun. That's ludicrous. The idea is that the angel is so bright, so clearly defined, that he can be seen even though he's standing in front of the sun itself. This angel, he cries with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, The flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So with regards to this final judgment, no human being is going to escape alive. John says, I saw the beast. This is the Antichrist. I saw the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You know, of all the branding in the Bible, <laughs> branding. I, I think it's it, it, you'll, you'll find it difficult to find a worse example of branding in all of Scripture than the battle of Armageddon. <laughs> like, seriously. What can be described here is hardly a battle at all. Like, in fact, this great angel... He brands this final global conflict not as a battle, but as being the great the supper of the great God. I love that phrase. You know, in the New Testament, you have two types of suppers. You have the Lord's Supper, right? It's a meal designed to help us reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, his broken body and the blood. Uh, with this first category, you also have the marriage supper of the land, this glorious wedding celebration we looked at last week. But in contrast to those two, you have a, a second category of suppers. This one. This supper. In two of the three, the saints are invited to come and eat. and the other, the wicked end up being eaten. They're on the menu. And I should add that you, my friend, have a total choice as to which supper you'd like to be a part of. A glorious menu or you on the menu. That's your call. Now, according to John, the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, along with their armies, they've gathered together with the intention to make war against Jesus. Like the language being used here suggests both a prearrangement Along with a deliberate intention. Now back in Revelation 16, John, he he tells us something. He says that he saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the false prophet. Weird imagery. So John explains to us, he says, uh, these frogs are the spirit of demons. Performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. Why? To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty to the place called in Hebrew armageddon not only does this tell us that there is a demonic element to the gathering of these nations to specifically wage war on jesus but you need to always keep in mind of the second coming that his return christ's return is not a surprise like prophetically we understand that this day the day of his coming was absolutely 100 percent knowable not just by believers but by everyone Scripturally, prophetically, seven years from the signing of a false peace between the Antichrist and many, and then more particularly, one thousand two hundred and sixty days, or three hundred, or three uh, three and a half years from the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist desecrate, desecrates the temple, Jesus said He would return. Jesus named the day. You know, ironically. In the end of time, the one thing that will finally unify the world. And again, we're talking a lot in our society about uh, you know, unification. We need to come together as a nation. We need to unify. We need, we need to act as one. Well, you know what will ultimately bring the world together? The one aim that will bring about the world community? <laughs> it ends up being an ill-advised plan to resist and destroy Jesus once and for all. Hey guys, you know Jesus is coming on this day. It's on the calendar. We're getting some early reports of it. This is the moment we should all rally around, put aside our differences. Let's take on that guy. <laughs> Stupid. Now chronologically, John's vision here of heaven opening, the second coming, Jesus making his descent, it aligns, again chronologically, it aligns with the seventh bold judgment that's re. Recorded for us at the end of Revelation 16. So if you want to try to imagine everything going on, you've got the portal opening up in heaven. You've got Jesus, the armies uh, coming through. You've got the the armies of the world gathered for a final battle. As all of this is going on, let me read you the seventh bowl. We're told the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. This is God declaring it's finished. There were noises and thunderings and lightnings. There was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. What results from this earthquake? So Jesus is coming. The armies have gathered. There's this, we're in the back end, coming through ranks of the angelic hosts, flying down. It's it's amazing. As all this is going on, Jesus is doing his thing. He's destroying uh, the armies with a word. The Antichrist, all that's happening. There's a massive earthquake. What results is the great city, Jerusalem, is divided into three parts. The cities of the nations, so all of the cities of the nations fall. Their total destruction are destroyed. Babylon, we're told, great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So the final reckoning of moral and societal Babylon that's recorded for us in Revelation 17 and 18 also happened in the midst of all of this, this great day of judgment. Continuing, John says that every island fled away, every mountain was not found. Great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone weighing about the weight of a talent. So uh, this is a hundred pound, give or take, hailstones falling from heaven, crushing men, which might explain why Jesus' robe ends up being scattered with blood. John says that men, as all these things are happening, wicked men, they blaspheme God because of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. And as these things are happening... Revelation 14, verses 18 through 20 records the devastation. John says that another angel came out of the altar who had had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in the sharp sickle, gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angels thrust in his sickle to the earth, gathered the vines of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So a lot of imagery of this final devastation. What results? And the wine press was trampled outside the city of Jerusalem. Blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle. So about five or six feet for 1,600 furloins or roughly 200 miles. And so you're just getting the scene, the second coming of Jesus, all of this devastation. The world starts shaking. Why? Because its maker is returning. The earth is shaking. It's giddy with excitement. Verse 20, Revelation 19, Then the beast was captured, the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. This would be the place that we typically, traditionally refer to as hell the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh you know i mentioned last sunday that i believe the things that john is recording for us and this passage will be largely overshadowed by the purpose for this particular day well again this will be a day a terrible day for some Jesus' return to this earth will be a cause of celebration for many. The groom exits heaven with his wife and the marriage supper of the Lamb gets started. The kingdom will have finally come and God's will will be accomplished on earth as it's always been in heaven. John tells us this massive army of all the heavenly saints return to earth with Christ. According to Matthew 24, verse 31, as that's happening, Jesus has sent His angels to gather from around the world His elect, those who have survived the tribulational period, to bring them to Jerusalem for the establishment of the kingdom. There's no question this number of the elect would include the 144,000, as well as those living in the cities of refuge, places like Petra. Well, that's happening without incident, without fanfare, Upon his return, both the Antichrist and false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. They're captured. There's no resistance. There's no battle. There's no fight. There's no comeuppance. John then says that the rest were killed with the sword. Everyone else in rebellion to God perishes when Jesus says the word. Regarding who's included with this this phrase, the rest. Who's included in this particular scenario? We can say with absolute certainty that anyone who's received the mark of the beast has had their fate sealed. They worship the image. They are consumed in this moment. I also do believe that we can surmise that if a person, in a hypothetical scenario that I think would be few and far between, if someone was able, let's say, uh, to refuse the mark of the beast, refuse arrest or detection, survive the tribulational period, but hadn't actually accepted Jesus' salvation, it's my opinion that this person, again, the wicked, would perish as well. That it's only the righteous that make it into the kingdom. On this day, the second advent of our King Jesus, a new millennia will be ushered in. Heaven comes to earth The kingdom of God will be established with Jesus sitting on the throne and you and I will rule and reign for a thousand years. We'll get to that next Sunday. Let me close with a perfect quote from A.W. Tozer. He said, The crux of the whole matter is this. Our wonderful created world will be restored to its rightful owner. I, for one, look forward to that day I want to live here when Jesus Christ owns and rules the world. Until that hour, there will be conflict, distress, and war among the nations. We will hear of suffering and terror and fear and failure, but the God who has promised a better world is the God who cannot lie. He will shake loose Satan's hold on this world and its societies and systems. Our Heavenly Father will put this world into the hands of, that were once nailed to a cross for our race of proud and alienated sinners. It is a fact. Jesus Christ is returning to earth. <laughs> Next Sunday, we're going to unpack what this world looks like. What a world looks like operating on the rule and authority of Jesus. So Father, Lord, we do. We thank you for this word. What a wonderful scene.